Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall. And again, I am joined by Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization. We have just been talking off air about some exciting things that are happening at RP, but also um, our usual yearly collab where Mike and plus uh, some other people are coming over to the UK. Um, this time, we, I won't put out who might be coming, but there is going to be more than just Mike this time. And as everyone who's come before absolutely loves it, um, it's going to be bigger and better every single year. So we're super excited for that. It's probably going to be around May time. So um, definitely keep your eyes and ears open for it. And if you really want to kind of get the first scoop, then um, just making sure to follow us on social medias and also sign up to our email list, which will be linked below because um, we will email out there. So how are you doing, Mike? I know we just spoke and you're also deloading now, um, as am I. Yeah, deloading, but I decided to cut the mesocycle at a good time to where I'm not completely wrecked. Uh, just at that sort of like, man, if I can, if all my mesos I could cut at this time, it'd be great. Like you, you basically know that you're getting no more good training sessions out, but all the training sessions so far have been really good. Uh, it's like the ideal time to cut it, you know? So I'm, I'm doing great, feeling pretty good. And I just dropped body weight from 265 in August. Now I'm down to 245 uh, or so. It was the easiest cut of my entire nice. life because I ate 900 grams of carbs to get up to 265. So as soon as I pulled back to 600, my body was like, Bleh! I just lost a bunch of weight. Like a ton of that was fluid, but it was a super easy cut. So what I'm doing now is I'm going to be maintaining maybe a little, like sort of just, uh, you know, eating and training pretty hard um, over the holidays. And then in January, I start another nine week cut to get down to, you know, another 10 pounds of fat probably. And that will put me in a cool position to do a maintenance phase through uh, April, May, June. And then in July, I start dieting for what will probably be a contest. Amazing. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm in pretty good shape right now. I got some cool veins and stuff going on. I think at the end of, or the beginning of March, I'm going to start to look really fucking interesting. And then I'm not going to get much heavier after that, um, more or less maintain that condition and get a little softer and then come back in uh, the summer and really start to crank things in. I've, I've really got my diet uh, dialed in. Uh, thanks to Broderick and my supplements dialed in thanks to Broderick big time. So it's really, really smooth sailing, very predictable uh, when you're, you know, special sports supplements are so like you're doing yourself. You have no fun clue what you're doing with me for three or four years. Um, there's a lot of like, just uh, like unpredictability where you're like, ah, I should be gaining weight, but I'm not, or I should be losing weight, but I'm not. Now it's like really sort of just set in stone. And that's a really, really good place to be. So. Yeah, I guess it makes it all that much more complicated when you chuck those in the mix. Like 100%. people get stressed out about enough about kind of, I don't know, menstrual cycles, sodium intake, oh, yeah. changing through phases, some yep. soreness rated because you're holding on to it from training and yep. you've got all of that multiplied by 10. Absolutely. Yeah. That's super exciting. I guess, yeah, more reason for people to come over in May when you're going to be in some gnarly condition. I guess another good reason is to see you and your fucking arms, man. Every time you make a post, I'm like, the hell happened to Steve's arms? You've been killing it in training lately. Like your deadlifts and stuff or and, and your squatting is like, oof, I watched that one leg session you did. And I was like, God, thank God I'm not Steve. That looked like a painful session. <laughs> they are. They're like the splitting up my leg training into AM and PM sessions has been good, but it's like hard i'm glad psychologically this deloaded this deload was quite needed but yeah thank you it's it's going super well and 
Um, yeah, it's just using the principles, auto-regulating volume, making sure that I'm ticking all the boxes off. Um, the last That last leg session I did with those squats and that one set of squats, my legs are still very sore, and this is like three days afterwards. So, oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, you seem to be really hitting a stride in the last half year with your training where I think like you you really are transitioning as an athlete from the figuring out what works stage of your career into the you've got stuff pretty well figured out for your body and it's like you've just been making these slow and steady gains for seemingly a while now it's just really cool to watch yeah i'm i'm kind of worried for when they might peter out and they don't keep coming so psychologically now that's right you've got it all figured out when you have good times worry that they're going to be bad when you have bad times be pissed that they're bad that way you're never happy and life <laughs> life success you're like that's like the jared feather school of, of psychology right there brilliant yeah i can i can see him being just like that with his heavy metal in the background that's it <laughs> um so yeah no and you're completely right this is kind of I just feel much more in a really bro-ish term connected to my training and an understanding that is now giving me confidence. So I used to have anxiety about whether I was doing the quote unquote optimal thing, the right thing. And it's kind of like, well, there's so much information out there now, just be confident that you know it and then move forward with it. And I think a lot of our listeners probably benefit from that as well. Yeah. I think a lot of it, um, I got that some of the, the first interactions, even not direct, but just reading a stuff that I got sort of from Eric Helms and the 3DMJ crew. When I sort of became a bit more popular in this evidence-based scene, I was correctly seen as someone who was chasing optimality. And a lot of the pushback I got from the 3DMJ crowd was like, if you have something that works well, don't like upset the apple cart by trying to change everything and making it optimal. And at the time, I was like, ugh, like, that's not a very scientific view of things. It's not the kind of precision we want. And you don't want to have a good career. You want to have a great career. You want all the gains instead of some. But I think there's a great uh, sort of meeting in the middle there where you start from a beginning, from, like, if you have no clue what's going on with your training, like you said, you're not connected to your body at all or you're to your results. Like you just have no, there's no predictability. You know, like guys will say, like I'm sure you're in your Revive Stronger group on Facebook, people will be like, man, last week training was great and this week training was awful and I just don't know why. And like you kind of like read that and you're like, man, like I just wish you the learning of the principles and of your body that you will have few situations like that. Like you and I probably like when we have a bad week, we know damn well why it's a bad week. It's like a mystery. It's like, I can tell you exactly how my next week's going to go based on this one. So I think the, for the folks that really haven't gotten their training to click yet, that search for optimality is a real bad idea because it's just going to be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. It's not optimal. What's going on? It sounds of confusion. I think step one is to get that clicking of like, man, my training's smooth. It's predictable. That's the biggest one. Once that happens, you've got this dashboard of variables, right? Volume, intensity, frequency, nutrition, blah, blah, blah. Then you just start mucking with the dashboard real smooth and real slow, kind of one or two things at a time. And then you see how your progress goes. You retain that flexibility and you start the slow crawl towards optimality as opposed to being like, I want a fucking clean slate and just have optimal program. It's like, that's really impossible because in order for the program to be optimal, it has to overlay accurately on what your current responses and state is. And if you don't know this, it's like this, you're like, there's nothing to overlay. It's like, what's optimal for you is a fucking wild guess. All we could do is learn the principles when you're stable, 
we can start working to optimal. Like someone's like, what training frequency should I use for biceps? And I'm like, my first question is, what's your training frequency now? And, and, and sometimes they're like, well, I don't know. It's been spotty. Like I've tried this, I've tried that. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> try a frequency and just stick to it. And I give that's when I go general, right? Two to four sessions a week. Just try two sessions a week for biceps. Like, All right. And then I'm like, you know, come, come back to me in a month or two. In a month or two, they come back and I'm like, how has it been? And they're like, it's been good. I'm like, okay, progress is good. Good. Are you healing on time? Yes. Do you feel like you're exceeding like your, your intra-session MRV? They're like, yeah, because I'm doing like 15 sets of biceps per session and I'm just getting tired at the end and I feel like if I split it up more, I could be high quality. I'm like, perfect. Try three times a week. Lower the volume on everything three times a week and then start slow, slowly working back up. And then they're like, wow, this is great because they had something that clicked. They knew their recovery. They knew their adaptation. They made one change and then it's a beautiful synthesis after that. Whereas if they're like, I don't really know how many sessions I'm doing. I'm not going to be like, we'll start with four or some shit or, you know, like just start with what's simple, what's really easy and then go from there. I think there's a ton of value to that sort of approach. Yeah, I think it's people can really understand that and it's brilliantly stated by yourself in that when you think about diets, people can start off with like meal plans and then they can kind of get to grips with that. Then they might go to tracking and then eventually you might get to kind of that mindful eating where you kind of know what you're doing. You don't really need to worry about things so much. Um, I think it's a very similar transition, but training just doesn't seem to click for people as well. Totally. Yeah. But diet, yeah, that's a really good point. Diet, Steve is like, people are like, I want what's optimal. I'm like, okay, well here's this RP diet app and it's going to tell you exactly what to eat for every meal of every single day. And it's going to time it to within 30 minutes. And they, they try it and they're like, oh man, that's like too much for me. It's like, I know, I should have told you. You're not ready for optimal. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like it's like enrolling in like Air Force, like like fighter pilot flight school and be like, I want to be the best fighter pilot. It's like, nice. Do you know how to fly a plane? Like, not yet. They're like, why don't we just make you a, a pilot first? Then we can worry about optimal, right? And a lot of that I think is kind of missed. And, and with dieting, unfortunately, it happens all the time where people like, especially, fuck man, this is like super pertinent post. I hope that folks that are watching this, because a lot of your audience is trainers and stuff, I hope they maybe can communicate some of these uh, messages if they find them valuable to their clients, especially this time of year. Folks, January 1st is coming up. Do not start what's optimal. Start what is reasonable and what is simple and it will just get you results, just some results. Later, you can make it more optimal. And some people are like, what's the, like, I've got family that are like, they'll, they'll just text me out of the blue or call me and they'll be like, what's the best diet? I'm just like, shut the fuck up. You don't need the best diet. You need a diet, motherfucker. You need like two meals a day that don't suck because you currently have zero meals a day that don't suck. And it's funny because people think they're kind of being ripped off. You know what I mean? Like you can walk in. I guess this is also the analogy still works. I was going to say you can walk into like a, a technology store and come out with the best computer uh, so they think, well, why don't I just buy the best diet? The thing is, even the best computer, it's going to be like, well, this is a gaming laptop. And they're like, okay, what does that mean? It means it costs $4,000. And they're like, why the fuck does it cost that much? Well, you got like a, like a fucking, you know, like a, enough RAM to run the fucking supercomputer and to play online games like three players at a time. And they're like, great, how does that work? We're like, well, you're not, you don't even understand how it works. Like, just get a regular laptop. And then when you get into gaming and your laptop speed slows you down, then you'll know enough to, you know what I mean? So I think it just applies to a lot of stuff is people want just boom, right, right into the super advanced. And it's like, mm, just start with the normal. And because that normal isn't just, it's not like people think it's, um, 
it's like you have to earn it, you know, like you're not ready for advance, brother. You gotta fucking put in your pay your dues. You're not paying your fucking dues. This isn't an honor-based society. You're learning your own body or your own mind well enough so that you can even choose what's optimal. Because optimal is always the intersection of advanced principles with what your body is going to respond to. If you don't know that part, again, uh, then it's pointless to even apply these because you have no fucking clue. So uh, I think that, like, especially for New Year's resolutioners, you know, they're, what's the best diet? Like, what's the diet that's you're going to be looking at it the first time you ever use it? And you're going to look over the documents and be like, hmm. Yeah, I can do this. That's the diet you need. And then later when that diet's too easy, you know, when you really got it down, but your results are starting to slow down, then you can incrementally bump the level of advancement. Mm-hmm. Really nice. Yeah, really pertinent for this time of year because no no doubt there's going to be a load of New Year's revolutioners, which isn't a bad thing, but it's when right. they, yeah, they don't keep it going, which is the consistency, that adherence part. So sure. um, we're getting to the questions. And uh, the first question is from Robert Litz. Um, and thank you. He is a Patreon supporter of the podcast, so we appreciate you. He has essentially asked, um, he understands the use of downsets for hypertrophy. He's heard you kind of really well explain those. He's wondering their application towards strength training or programming. What would we use downsets for? The same thing they're used for in hypertrophy, which is the addition of volume. Um, so basically, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of ways to do downsets. The traditional thinking of downsets is to lower the weight, do the same number of reps or similar. There's a potential way to do downsets, which is very, you know, not very well, many much practiced, but it is possible to do just to outline the theoretical behind downsets is to drop reps and keep the same weight. When you're too tired to do sets of six, you do sets of four with the same weight. It still adds volume, but at a similar intensity, um, because you can't hit those same reps anymore. So you basically get into a, a sort of conundrum with down sets or with, with straight volume, with straight sets, where, uh, you know, let's say you have to do, let's say your sort of target workout somewhere between your M, uh, MEV and MRV in strength training, Let's say your session has six sets of squats. Like that's just what you need to grow or to get stronger. It's just, that's how, how much stimulus you need. Right. And you, you know, look at strength training and you sort of look into the literature and you realize, okay, like for sets of six, you know, anything shy of like three or four reps in reserve, it just isn't going to cut it. You know, like that's just not strength training anymore. It's just like a long warm up. Plus, if I have like my eight RM on the bar and I do five RAR, that's six sets of three, but the really easy sets of three is just going to take me forever to get through the shit. So, and you know, like there is something to strength for getting a little closer to failure. So I would say these sort of optimal, optimal. If, if you only had to pick one RAR ever to train for strength, it would probably be two RAR. It's probably the best. And, you know, two or one, even if you're training heavy enough. So two RAR and you figure, okay, so I got to hit two RAR sets in sort of like the three to six rep range, I got six of them shits, hold up. So you might hit four of sets like that and your reps might be like six, five, four, three, because you get tired. But after, uh, you know, the last two sets, you're like, man, either I'm hitting doubles, <laughs> which just doesn't add that much volume. Uh, Cause you know, they say the number of hard sets is equivalent. Sorry. 
Verifone, <laughs> you got your side business there. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're looking at, you know, you need more volume with that heavy resistance. And if you're just so tired, basically, that you're just doing doubles, I mean, geez, it's just not enough volume. It's not enough time under tension to give the, your, your nervous system and your muscles enough stimulus to grow them and to strengthen them optimally. Just plain and simple. It's not enough dose. So you say, okay, how can I give more dose? One option is to do more sets. Um, it's totally possible. But, you know, that'll take you into a repetition range. You know, you're grinding heavy twos at that point. I mean, you need a lot of sets of two to get more volume. Uh, and also, it's just you know, it's real fatiguing. I mean, if you're doing sets of two, I don't know if you're really doing three or two RIR anymore. You might be doing one RIR at that point, which is too fatiguing. So what you could choose to do, and like I said, dropping reps is a, a possibility. So in, instead of, you know, let's say you hit a bunch of sets of five, and then you're too tired to hit sets of five, so you just do sets of three after that. You make four sets of five, and then two sets of three. That's totally possible. Um, or what you could do is try to keep hitting sets of five, so you drop the weight low enough to where it's still two RIR, and it's sets of five, so drop by 10% or something. And the fundamental thing is, can you stick within your RIR boundaries and within your dedicated rep range that you've chosen and get enough volume to accomplish your volume goals for that phase? If you can, without drop sets, you don't need drop sets. People think there's some kind of magic to drop sets sometimes where they're like, I see guys that do two top sets, not very strong guys, like Chad Wesley Smith, it makes sense because two of his top sets taking fucking life out of him, right? But like guys who folks could keep going for like four more sets and they just do drop sets anyway. And they're like, okay, your favorite Instagram lifter does drop sets. You're really advanced. These are the same kind of people that like walk a squat out and do the stomp. You ever see the stomp set up where you're like, the fuck are you stopping for? It's like a hundred kilos on the bar. Like stop. But you know, some of these like down sets, I'm doing down sets. And of course they're going to post on Instagram, talk about down sets. Hey, sometimes you don't need them. There's a bunch of workouts where I didn't need down sets, you know, like probably like anywhere between, three and five for most people and most times three and five working sets you can totally do and stick to a reasonable RAR range right um after that yeah if you got more sets to do you're going to do downsets when you think about it switching exercises is also accomplishing a downset thing so for example like if someone's doing squats and then front squats well as soon as you do squats for let's say sixes and front squats for eights your front squat's way lighter load to get eights. It's another form of downsets to just get more volume, right? So again, it's, it's a real simple calculation of what do I need to do downsets? I have rep targets, RIR targets. If I can no longer meet them at the end of the workout, but I still have my volume targets to meet, I can accomplish those with downsets. Yeah, really nice. And I think the only um, different application I've seen used or I've used personally, I think Jared might have used them as well, is where you might use them as a bit of it, like add them on as like a layer of you've gone through one mesocycle of like six to eights, then you keep maybe a couple of sets of six to eights, you have some down sets that get you into a higher repetition zone. But essentially, it's the same sort of we're just using it to get out some extra volume. It's like under That's the it. repetition. Yeah, range. totally, exactly. At that point, it's like, okay, so I, I established my strength dosing. I gave myself enough strength sets. Now I need a little bit of hypertrophy conservation sets. And that really just means that your total volume target for the workout is higher, significantly higher, that you can't accomplish it within fatigue realms in sets of three to five. So you got to drop the weight and go to sets of six to eight. Um, that's it. Cool. Awesome. So we get to the next question from David Beamish, who has asked, 
Often developing habits is a good thing as it automates behavior and frees decision-making. But for example, during contest prep, these habits can become neurotic. He says, what are warning signs of these and how can they be tackled? Hmm. Warning signs of neuroticism is when, is when you have neuroticism. So, um, a pretty easy way to tell is asking yourself if you're concerned, um, what is the exact finite specific purpose of this current activity that I am habitually doing and does its purpose align with my goals in a way that is reasonable, close to optimal or a good guess and sustainable. So for example, if you look both ways before crossing the street, that is a good habit, especially in the UK when cunts drive on the wrong side of the fucking road. Isn't it? So it's a good habit and it's uh, reasonable. Okay, you don't want to die. It's sustainable. It's not difficult for your neck or anything like that. And it's you're know, pretty close to optimal if you want to like, again, not die. So, uh, you know, uh, it checks all the boxes. Now, what about if you look five times both ways before crossing the street? And mind you, that's not five times because the traffic situation is changing. That's five times when the road is completely open. So you assessed zero cars up to 500 meters away, zero cars up to 500 meters away. And again, five times. You go back through the checklist. Is it reasonable to look five times? No. Is it sustainable? Yeah, sure, at a price, <laughs> uh, but certainly not, you know, potentially it's just a nuisance. Um, it also makes you fucking look weird and have to explain yourself to people. And, you know, is it uh, you know, optimal? No, no, it actually gives you no more benefit for only exclusively cost, right? So some of the, uh, you know, the habits you could get into with contest prep, like you get in the habit of weighing all of your food, but then you get a packaged food that uh, is very well sorted. Maybe it's even like a fitness food. So it's very well packaged and very well weighed like a protein scoop and you weigh your protein scoops. Okay. Is it reasonable for me to weigh something that has already been pre-weighed for me? No. Is it optimizing? Yes. By a tiny percentage point. Is it sustainable? No, because it's going to drive me insane if I have to weigh everything all the time. And it, it literally costs me, um, it costs me uh, physical effort and the, psych the burdensome psychology of having to go through a routine when I could just be doing things that are relaxing or productive. So it fails on those grounds. And, and, and that's actually how you, it's, it's actually a really good test for, for sanity because, you know, being very highly neurotic is a way of being insane. A good test for sanity is, does this make sense for me to be doing, right? Like, uh, now, mind you, if you pass your own test for sanity, you might still be insane. <laughs> Probably the hallmark of being truly insane is that you think you're fine, right? It's, it's so funny because, you know, like, uh, you know, I've been down my own roads and uh, continue to uh, explore, you know, like psychedelic drugs and stuff, like mushrooms and stuff like that. And it's funny because when you trip out, trip with people, they like, look at you and they're like, oh man, I, I think I'm like losing my mind. And I'm like, 
why do you think you're losing your mind? And like, cause I, it's just like, she doesn't seem right. I'm like, congratulations. You haven't lost your mind. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if you think like the green elf you're talking to is actually there and you don't see a problem with that, you're nuts. <laughs> right. So, so the thing is, is like, you know, how do you, so going back to the question, how do you avoid neurotic behaviors? If you suspect that some of your behaviors are generating neurosis, then you analyze if they're logical, if they're defensible, if they're reasonable, if they're sustainable, if they're close to optimal and you're not just doing them, because you're addicted to habits and you're, I've got to get this done. I've got to get this done. I've got to get this done. Like I've got to weigh myself at 9.59 AM every day, every single day. Is it reasonable to do that? Not really. Is it optimal? Not really. Right. Is it sustainable? No, because it's greatly inconvenient. Like sometimes you wake up a little earlier, sometimes later, sometimes you have appointments, so on and so forth. So if you, if our behavior fails on those grounds, then it is an improper, unreasonable behavior. It is probably generated by neurotic tendencies and you should stop doing it um that's it you don't need to like you can if you want you don't need to like you know give up bodybuilding and run through the fucking meadowland flowers of gaia the earth goddess and shit like that like you know because people go overboard on that stuff they're like oh man like i was so neurotic about bodybuilding i quit everything and i started eating like shit and i feel so much better now it's like you could have just reasonably extracted yourself a little bit from neurosis and just been more logical like i thought i totally at times where I'm like, you know, I've got to get 15 sets done today. And like auto-regulation tells me I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, why am I going to just stop? Just stop. Stop. Mm-hmm. You, because, and, and a good way to practice that is to hold logic and reason as your highest absolute values. If you can defend an unreasonable action and you doing it, you got a real serious fucking problem because then there's nothing you're going to do. There's no backstop. If someone asks you, like, why are you doing that? And you're like, because. Like, do you think it's logical to do that? Like, no, but I'm still going to do it. Like, Fucking three cheers, man. I got nothing more to say to you. How are you supposed to talk someone out of doing something if they're willfully logical, right? So if you're still logical, you know you're being neurotic when you're being illogical and when you're dedicating yourself to completing a behavior which is still habitual but no longer logical. That's it. And if you that way, through this constant filtering mechanism of, of, of checking because it's logical, it's logical, it's logical, eventually, you know, like you only really do things that are logically defensible. That's it. And then you're, it doesn't matter. You're, then you're not neurotic because you're doing things that work. And, and if they're habits and they're logical and they make sense, it's kind of okay to be neurotic. Like, so, so people say, you know, addiction is really bad. All of us are addicted to food and air and water. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. People say, oh, I'm addicted to training. Like, that's probably a good thing unless you're going overboard, right? So if you're addicted to training, but illogically when the training gets too hard, you, you do a deload because you have to, you've got your fucking gold and you won the fucking lottery of psychology. There's way worse shit to be addicted to. So it's totally cool to have behaviors that are very habitual, sort of bordering on addiction, as long as they're good behaviors and they're not illogical. As a matter of fact, man, this is great, great topic. Um, one of the ways that they define addiction in like the diagnostics manuals for psychiatry is, is it interfering with your life and the lives of those around you? If it's not, it literally just doesn't qualify. So like people could be like, Steve, are you addicted to training? And, and you'd be like, um, maybe I sure feel like it. And they like, okay, is training ruining your relationships? You're like, no, it's probably making them better. Like, okay, is training like making you devalue other important parts of your life that you know you're important and you know you should attend to? Like, you skip social events that you actually want to be at all the time because you just compulsively go train. You're, you know, skipping out on family and friends. You, you, these foods that you want to eat, you just don't. And even though you really want to eat them, you're not, and you hate it uh, because not because you have a goal of like I want to be lean, but because you're like, no, these are bad foods, and I'm a good person, and I don't eat them. 
if you can't answer yes to those questions, it doesn't matter how much you love training and how much you need it. You're just not addicted, right? Is Elon Musk addicted to work? Probably. But it, motherfucker's life looks pretty well sorted. I'd like to try to tell him, oh, you're an addict. You need like rehab. Rehab for what? Being a billionaire? <laughs> right? So it's totally cool to have habits and totally cool for them to help you run your life by being automatic. You just have to shit check them to make sure they're still logical. That's it. Well, I think brilliantly answered, and it sounds like you've actually thought that through somewhat. I don't know if you'd already had that panned out somewhere, but that was a really good answer. Yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, no, it's just stuff you think about all the time. And um, I'm, uh, you know, uh, one of my hobbies, because I have no friends, is, you know, like things like philosophy and psychology and stuff. I studied quite a bit of psychology back in uh, university, and I always read, uh, keep reading about it. And I do a lot of introspection and meditation and stuff like that. And a lot of the stuff you can figure out, like, you think about it in your, in your daily day, your sort of day-to-day life. It comes up all the time. Like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Does this align with my goals? It's, yeah. it's not that hard. <laughs> you just got to take a little bit of personal honesty. And, and some shit, you know, just doesn't make any sense and you're still doing it. And then you got to pay the piper. You got to sort of answer to yourself, like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, um, I've had that with exercises. You ever have that with exercises, Steve? We were like, people said I need to be doing this. Or like, you start an exercise and you're like, I'm going to follow through. It's hurting your joints. It sucks. There's three better exercises. You're like, no, I got to do this. What the fuck are you doing? Stop. And then you stop and you do better shit. And you're like, this is way better. I'll do that with weights. I'll do like, like a, like lateral raises for 15 reps. And I get this gnarly shoulder pump. Everything feels great. And I try it for like eights and then everything hurts. And I'm like, no, I got to do it. And I'm like, is this logical? Like, no, nothing about it. I don't need to do it for eights. Volume all sums up anyway. And like, why am I doing this? Because of ego. Plain is because I want to use the 45s. Like, man, is that a good enough reason for me in an alternate universe? Like, if alternate universe me saw me training, would he make fun of me? Yes, he'd make fun of me. That's the stupidest thing you'd ever do. Why you better stop doing it? And then you stop doing it. It requires a lot of self-honesty, but yeah. the shit pays off because then you don't do dumb shit all the time. No, I, I can completely relate to that. I'm sure the audience can. And actually, as a side interest, is there any weird neurotic habits you got into in any of your preps that you were like, I don't know that you can share. Is there anything you did? You're fucking kidding me. <laughs> One of the side effects of trenbolone acetate is to literally make you clinically neurotic. Um, you start having neurotic thoughts. You start having psychotic thoughts. Um, like, God damn dude. <laughs> Real nasty shit. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, fantasizing about cheap foods. Um, have going into cycles of I can't have them. Um, it's just this real moralistic kind of stuff. Uh, I can't have them, but I really want them. Maybe I can squeeze them in. Like macros and IFYM just doesn't work at that point because you're just going to try to eat everything with junk food. Mm-hmm. Trying to justify high carb days and then trying to commit to lower carb days and you start getting flatter and you're like, justify to yourself. No, I need to fill out. So I need I need to eat more carbs today. You really know in the back of your head that you're just being a piece of shit and you're just hungry, um, but your brain doesn't work so well. So you're like, just lie to yourself all the time. Real, real gnarly shit. Uh, yeah. And, and prep is, uh, you know, sports supplements or no sports supplements. Prep's a nasty time to, to basically like, you don't have the psychological faculties or the willpower to really give things a lot of thought. So like, like uh, the gentleman who asked this question said, you sort of start coasting on habits and you don't sometimes analyze when they become neurotic or not. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, 
body weight stuff. Like, so I take my weight and I try to calculate like what possible offsets could result in this weight. Like, okay, but I didn't eat as many carbs yesterday. Ooh, but I had a bigger pump. Ooh, but I trained with high volume. So that's going to be intramuscular bloating. And I try to just like think through all the stuff about like, why is my weight exactly what it is? And the real answer is shut fuck up, just get your weight, write it down. And over three weeks and stuff, you'll give lost fat. It works. Right. But you get really, really focused on details. You're not supposed to stuff like that all the time. Yeah, I can I can completely relate, and I think a lot of the things you said there, there, the even on trend or not, as a natural, you still go through all of those thoughts, um, which are definitely not helpful. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I've dieted as a natural a bunch, and as a natural, you wake up every day in your diet, and you're like, okay, you do every set you do, every time you flex, you're like, am I losing muscle? Am I losing muscle? Am I losing muscle? Am I losing muscle? This is it. I'm losing muscle. I'm losing strength. It's just days for me to become skinny again. I knew it. Like I, uh, I, there's just no. I just don't have the genetics for this. Like there's no way out. Uh, typical like day of natural prep. So. And I know uh, it, for some of these neurotic habits, for me at least, it was just time to like in prep, they were kind of useful and it was just outside of prep. They weren't, but it just took me time. Like uh, I can remember Charlotte being like, oh, you don't eat your like weird oat concoction before bed and eat like it in the corner and in this specific way with your specific spoon. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't anymore. When did I stop doing that? <laughs> That's good. That's good to grow out of them. Some people just have to, it's, it's good that you just sort of drifted away. Some people don't drift away and they have to talk themselves away from it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's the hard part. And that's why I think a, a lot of the time competing year to year for those people that haven't been competing a long time, it just doesn't make sense for them. You definitely need to decompress. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so he has another part to this question, or actually it's a different question. He said, um, in terms of kind of trying to find what is quote unquote optimal for you in terms of nutrition, how would one go about identifying that? Um, is there any kind of systematically ways we can perform experiments to try and find what really works for them? Any meaningful data? First, start with as many of the basics that work as you can. And then make sure that whatever outcome variables you're measuring can, can be measured on the time scales you want. Some variables can be measured on relatively short time scales. For example, you're trying to figure out what portion of your carbohydrates pre-workout versus much later in the day is optimal for energy levels in your workout versus making you too bloated or versus not giving you enough energy and making you hungry. That's something you can tweak every day for two weeks and then finally find values that are reasonable. You also have to understand that every, every optimality uh, because of the stochastic nature of the human body uh, is uh, just a range. And some days you feel better, some days worse, but like, you know, I'm never going to tell you like, okay, if like 95 grams of carbs is my pre-workout. It's not 96. It sure as hell isn't 97. That's crazy talk. Sometimes it's 94, but only on Tuesdays. Like it's nuts. Be like, you know, what do you do with your pre-workout? And I'd be like, you know, like 80 to hundred grams of carbs usually. And it'd be like, like, what's the difference between 80 and 100? I'm like, are you in your fucking mind? I don't know. I can't even tell. Like, at a plate 80 versus 100. I can't even, like, see what the difference is there. So, but, but I know it's probably not 50. It is probably not 150, you know? So one of them is just setting reasonable limits on what optimality looks like. And then, you know, it, it, you, what are your outcome variables? If your outcome variable is daily energy or workout energy, you can measure that every, every after every workout and be like, hey, I rate this many carbs and the work like that. And make sure you make meaningful changes, too. Uh, another so so for example, let's say you're used to eating 50 grams of carbs two hours before your workout, 
and you're thinking, is, is more carbs going to help me? Uh, go to 75 for a couple of days and see how you feel. Um, and, and really give it a good run, not just one day, because, you know, it could just be error, right? So 75 for a couple of days, and you're like, wow, these last couple of days, really, I just did just perform better. My digestion was fine. Everything was great. 75 beats 50. That's it. And if you're not sure, go back to 50 for three days. And you're like, man, that definitely sucks. Fuck 50. Back to 75, then you're great. And then go to 100 and see if 100 works, right? Uh, and don't just like, you know, people are like, yeah, I've experimented with higher carbs. Like, what do you mean? Like, I used to eat 50 grams and now I eat 55. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You don't know. It is, there's nothing you learn from that. Um, so, so one of those is, you know, making meaningful changes that are sizable and then tracking the results. Um, you know, as far as nutrition, another one is, man, you know, the, the tough thing about nutrition is like energy levels are easy to measure. Um, the degree of fullness you have in your workouts and stuff like that is easy to measure. The rapidity of weight loss is relatively easy to measure. The results on muscle gain are really hard to measure because that shit takes a long time. Results on fat loss are tougher, tough to measure, but sort of like, you know, on the scale of weeks and months, you can tell if your protocol is resulting in more fat or less fat. And then muscle gain, it's really the big picture, big swaths. I will tell you, though, that um, uh, I'm not a huge fan of, well, let me put this more scientifically. There is a range of alterations you can make to your diet with which you have no reasonable instruments to detect the precision of the change. For example, people will say, okay, um, do you prefer to eat mostly peanut butter for your fats or mostly almond butter? And which one's better for muscle growth? What the fuck are you going to measure that? That's two tablespoons a day. It's the same macros. So automatically you just go to the RP diet book and you're like, Hey, that is like maybe half a percent of total difference on your, on your muscle growth. Let, let's let's see exactly what that means. That's half a percent of the difference in muscle growth. Let's say you put four kilos on of muscle in six months. Pretty good. Right? What the fuck's half a percent of four kilos? Oh my God. But there's not a, there's not an MRI machine that can detect that level of muscle. So some things, you know, people will say like, yeah, I really prefer like almonds versus, you know, olive oil. And I'm like, hey, sweet. That's news to me. You know, <laughs> like must be like, then again, you need more acute variables like digestion. Like you just don't like almonds. They make you feel weird. Man, that's totally cool. Just do what you like. But, you know, as long as you're doing the basics, man, a lot of nutritional precision is just wasted uh, analysis time. You could just be analyzing shit that actually matters. Like people would literally ask me like, um, there's these funny Instagram questions you never think of. Like, do you prefer oats or rice, Dr. Mike? I'm like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> they go in the mouth and they come out of your ass. Hopefully someone digested and you get pumps and that's it. Like, I don't fucking know. Like there's maybe I just don't have a sensitive stomach. There's like 800 different kinds of carbs I could eat. And it's all a fucking thing. Now, if they're meaningfully different in glycemic indexes, like that's something, right? Like, do you prefer to drink Gatorade two hours before you work out or eat white rice? Like, well, the white rice is going to stick with me a little longer. Um, it's not going to make me super hungry. I don't get rebound hypoglycemics. These are defensible, easily detectable reasons. But I think some people are like, yeah, man, you know, I switched from tilapia to fucking red meat. And I noticed, like, you didn't know a shit. Shut the fuck up. Like, make belief in your own head. Now, if you're a contest bodybuilder, and your physique changes day to day and you do a week of tilapia and you look at your physique, a week of steak, and you look at your physique, if you isolated the macros to be identical, you might be able to make some conclusions, especially with like, 
you know, the food carries like a bunch of like immune factors, a bunch of sort of like uh, hormonal factors that might have differences, not in long-term muscle gain or fat loss, but in just how much water you carry, right? So like you might eat some meat and if your gut bacteria flips you the middle finger and you're carrying more water and your gut looks distended. And then you might eat some fish and your gut bacteria is like jamming and everything looks great and you feel great. That doesn't mean that you're gaining more or less muscle or whatever, but it just means you're, you know, like pre-contest, like in the week before, you probably want to stay away from steak, right? And that's the kind of, again, acute measures But people like, you know, uh, I just don't want people asking the questions that lead nowhere because the ability to measure is impossible and the theoretical differences are pretty much null. Like what gains you more muscle, tilapia or steak? Like how the fuck are you going to find it? You're not going to find that out. That's when you get, you know, looking at research studies starts to be a little bit more valuable when you, you know, see like, in some kind of magical world, you know, a meta-analysis on tilapia versus steak consumption on studies where there are hundreds of participants in metabolic wards, and they measure acute variables and say, look, tilapia just straight up boosts your testosterone more. It causes less of a glycemic response. It's less allergenic, and it's better for muscle growth uh, for most people. And then you'll never be able to feel any of this or detect it in yourself, but you'll take it anyway. It's like we take multivitamins. You can't tell when you're on a multivitamin or not, but it works. Um, so, so that's how you tell that. You just make sure to, to sort of, uh, you know, stick with, uh, with basic science, measure what you can, and understand that a lot of stuff you, you, you won't be able to measure, but you don't have to. Because listen, here's the thing. If you eat like, you know, a, a, a two grams per kilo of protein, eat enough carbs to get you your workouts you need, and eat like a, at least a minimum amount of fat, mostly from healthy sources, timed in a way that doesn't make you sick and lets you eat your food, you are doing 95% of everything you're going to be to gain muscle. And then the question of like, well, I want to optimize even more is almost like, like, really? You have more important things to think about. Like think about how to optimize your consistency. Think about how to optimize your health so you're not sick as often versus like you're talking about different foods. This is maybe just me getting a little ranty, but like I honestly just, man, there's like, I don't know if it's a growing thing or it's always been around the obsession with specific foods. It's just really, just really fucking pissed. God, Dr. Mike, what do you think about avocados? Like, what? I don't think about them at all. I think they're great. They taste great. They're in a huge category, huge category of healthy fats. And like, what about versus olive oil? I'm like, yo, is there some kind of celebrity death match of healthy fats <laughs> that I missed somewhere? Like in the red corner, avocado from Brazil. You're like, those leg locks, careful. And olive oil's like, bah, da, bah, da, bah, da, right? It's Italian or whatever. It's just fucking nonsense. Like there's, you know, there's, there's hundreds of healthy foods that are bodybuilding effective foods that are all damn near the same on your physique and your health. The next question is, do you like how they taste uh, or do they make your tummy feel weird and upset? And if, if the answer is, mm, then, then variation. And it's, again, a huge thing people miss with optimality is variation is a part of eating. You'd be like, what's better, steak or tilapia? Like, if I tell you steak, will you never eat anything but steak again? And if the answer is yes, you fucked up because then you're doing yourself a disservice for nutrient diversity and everything. Yeah, I think just a brilliant answer all around in that people – I think just the point there in terms of being able to measure what you actually is realistically able to, because I think people come out with theoretical arguments and things for this food over this food, this time over this time or whatever it might be. And it's too minute to actually be anything that they could ever have good evidence for. So I thought that was really well put. Totally. And if, if it's that hard to measure, then it matters that little. Yeah. 
Uh, fantastic. We have time for one more question, Mike? Yeah, easily. Cool. So the last question is from Patrick James Barney, and he has asked, and it might be, uh, it's kind of a related question, I guess. He said, ingesting 75 to 85% of your carbohydrate intake peri-workout in an attempt to uh, take advantage of the increased sensitivity to insulin, will doing this over the long term provide any meaningful benefits to body composition? Yeah. 75 to 80% is kind of a lot. I'd say more like 60 but, um, yeah, I think it will. Uh, Cody Hahn actually just posted a recent um, study showing that uh, not only are muscle cells more sensitive to glucose in the several hours after training, but fat cells are less sensitive, um, which is, you know, something that I've been personally preaching for five, five years or some shit like that. This it, it, is the thing is, it's not a big difference. It's a small difference, but over the long time, it helps. So, like, do I get really pissed when people just eat all of their carbs evenly spread throughout the day? No, I think they're doing mostly everything correctly. If I, if they cluster their carbs just a little bit more around the workout window, are they going to have benefits? Yeah, probably really small benefits, but that over time we're going to give them that extra little bit. Um, if I see someone eating, you know, any carbs two meals after the workouts and not eating 150 grams of carbs per meal right after the workout, am I like, wow, well, that's a, that's a smart man. He's optimizing. I'm like, no, you're just like, you know, needlessly like ruining your life for something that, you're already filling in. There's remember like if insulin sensitivity is only slightly enhanced, so on and so forth, that means you only need only slightly amount of carbohydrates greater, not like, you know, 200 grams in one meal and then zero in the next to take advantage of the window. So yeah, it absolutely is a thing. But again, it's one of those things that's going to take you months and months and years and years to see the difference. And because there's no alternate universe you that didn't do that, you won't even see that. You won't even know what the difference is, mm -hmm. but based on good theoretical concerns, uh, and good studies that you should probably one of those things you should do. You know, it's one of those things like, you know, should you eat a whole lot of like, you know, sausage and bacon and all these other cured meats to reduce your risk or to increase your risk of colon cancer or something like that, or like stomach cancer. Like, yeah, you should probably just, you know, not eat those all the fucking time. And someone could say like, well, I've been eating for years and still nothing yet. Like, well, no shit. Like you could live till 90 and never get any kind of cancer. Just luck of the draw. You're like, so how do I know if it's working for my body? Because your body's damn near the same as everyone else's. And all, all the research on the huge meta-analyses and RCTs say that this is how it is. So you just some things you have to take on scientific inference, and you will never be able to detect them in your own body. Uh, you know, like, can, can I tell you that, like, I feel different with good nutrient timing versus okay nutrient timing? No, I feel the fucking same. Uh, but, you know, over time, is it making me... Uh, more jacked, yeah, probably just by a little bit. And I like to do things that are, are proper and effective. Yeah, really well put. And I think it is. It's like all those the the things at the higher end of the pyramid, the kind of the small individualization, the supplementation, the nutrient timing things. I think you're completely right in that we kind of know theoretically what was be a good idea, but we're never going to realistically be able to exactly know that that's having that result we want in the short term for our body, especially. Yeah. yeah. So I got time for another one if you want. Cool. We have one from, um, I know he's one of your favorites, Ido de Gaulle. Did I oh, say his name guy. right? <laughs> I, don't speak, I don't speak to these people. Um, he, he, I don't know. It's Ido, Ido probably. Ido de Gaulle. Yeah, he's actually orcish. Do you know what an orc? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's an orc, orc lord. Go check him out at RP Plus, guys. He's uh, right. one of the characters over there. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he has asked, uh, Mike's thought, and I don't think he's asked this over on RP Plus, Mike's thoughts on exercise selection when massing versus cutting. 
any considerations to have uh, to have, i.e., the novel effect, uh, saving more fatiguing exercises for massing, uh, so on and so forth. So you're going to be doing more isolation work when you're massing, because not because there's something special about isolation work, but because you're going to be more likely doing priority routines. So um, massing is the time to make improvements. So you might have very asymmetrical routines that you know, really train your chest a lot, but not your arms as much. And if you just train your chest, you might be able to do incline dumbbell press, flat bench press, and dips, zero isolation, and get enough good chest work to hold your size. Um, but that might be something you do in a cutting phase. But in a massing phase, you might add in some chest flies because you really want to put more emphasis on growing the chest. And, you know, after enough compounds, like you really just need to really more focus on the chest. So a lot of times when I see someone doing a lot of isolations, I sort of assume like, okay, well, they're probably trying to improve a body part. So I don't assume that they're massing, but I assume that they should be massing because if you're trying to improve a body part, you should be playing outside. Um, another thing is, yeah, I think that some exercises with uh, a lot of axial fatigue, axial loading and systemic fatigue are really only survivable and sustainable on a, on a masking phase. So maybe that's the time to do them. But again, it really has to come from a needs analysis. It's not like you're like masking, time for huge, like systemically fatiguing exercises. It's like masking, let's assess our needs. And because we have a little bit more juice to push in, we could select exercises that normally would just be sort of not for the greatest use. So an example there is like rack pulls. Like if you do rack pulls to try to bring up your back, uh, they're really fatiguing, but they really fuck the erectors up, which is cool. So if you decided that rack pulls are good for your back during a mass phase, you could definitely put them in. During a cutting phase, if you had rack pulls and I watched you do them during cutting, I would first question I ask you be like, it's all that systemic fatigue. Is it, is it worth the trade off of the lower rate of motion and the lower hypertrophic effect for the rest of your body? Right? Because for the rest of your body, like, you can train your legs a lot less on a mass and not lose any leg size. You could train your back a lot more and it'll do the push your back into the stratosphere. On a cut, if you train your back more, you exceed this MRV. So you can't do that. If you train your legs way less, you. Get, you know, below its MV and then you lose leg size. So it's one of those things that you're not going to be seeing short range of motion, uh, very isolation and very targeted exercises as much and very fatiguing with a variety of those as much on a cut as you will on a mask because the purpose of a cut is to give all of your muscles due justice with exercises that are, you know, very stimulatory and perhaps a little bit less fatiguing the stimulus to fatigue ratio uh, than they would otherwise be. Something that will, um, I'd like to just throw this concept out now. This is like, the, I think the first time I've talked about this concept in uh, public, so to speak. It's going to be a, a pretty big uh, discussion point in a, a scientific principles of, of hypertrophy book, which by the way, has already been uh, spread into multiple outlines and going to start writing in a couple weeks. Um, it's, it's a very, very, very important concept. And as soon as I say it, you'll be like, duh. Um, you can apply this to a program, but you can especially apply it to any exercise. The stimulus to fatigue ratio, critical. So for example, for the quadriceps, what is the amount of fatigue that we get or the amount of stimulus that we get from sumo stance, half rep squats for the quads? The stimulus is like, okay, not great. What's the fatigue? Fucking massive. So the ratio sucks. What about deep, high bar, with weightlifting shoes, uh, squats with a relatively close stance? 
and a pause at the bottom. The fatigue, decent, decent. The stimulus, massive. So the stimulus to fatigue ratio is higher, which if you think about it, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is super important uh, because you know that is how you get the most gains because the stimulus to fatigue ratio isn't just saying this exercise is better for muscle growth. It's saying something much cooler than that. It's saying, here's your MRV, and this exercise is better for muscle growth if we stick it here. But because we stick it here and it's got a low fatigue, it actually look, looks like this. So we can do time and a half more of that shit, and, and you get that much more growth. So it's a, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is super, super big concept, and it can be applied to exercises individually, especially for an individual person. And one of these things is a little bro-y, but it has merit to it. You know, how does an exercise make you feel how big of a hit does it give you? How big of a pump does it give you? And how much delayed onset muscle soreness can it produce with a certain volume? Uh, meanwhile, your perception of effort isn't so high, right? Because perception of effort really ends up being like fatigue or, your, or how much it fatigues you. So you're like, okay, is this a good exercise for me to include in my plan? Does it get me a good pump? Does it get me sore if I do, let's say, too much of it? Does it get me good doms? Like it means it's actually hitting what I want it to hit. And how fatiguing is it relative to other exercises? If you pick me an exercise which doesn't give you a good pump, you have to do 10 sets to get sore at all, and it's fatiguing as shit, that's a fucking garbage exercise. And some people, for bent rows, that's how they feel. But for cable rows, they feel the other way. I'm the other way around. For cable rows, I just do them forever, and I'm like, fuck, this is stupid. But for bent rows, they do four sets, and I'm like, this is amazing, right? So, and then some exercises, like people ask all the time, you know, what's better, compound heavy basics or isolations? Well, compound heavy basics have a great stimulus, but they a lot of fatigue. So the stimulus to fatigue ratio might be here. Isolation exercises have a shitty stimulus, but also really low fatigue. So they might actually have about the same ratio. So it's a lot of times not really a question between isolation and compound. It is how are you doing your compounds? Uh, range of motion. Now, here's, here's one. Range of motion almost always causes a greater stimulus to fatigue ratio. If you start cutting your reps short, you're going to get crazy fatigue because you have to use that much more weight. Uh, but your stimulus is going to be not so great. Uh, Mind-muscle connection, right? An instant boost to stimulus to fatigue ratios, finding exercises that fit you, proper technique, right? All that stuff. Like if you do squats and you lean over a ton and use your back, the stimulus to fatigue ratio for your quads fucking sucks. But if you stay upright and really sink into your quads, use control, mind-muscle connection, and so forth, the stimulus goes up, the fatigue goes down, and you've got a fucking golden-ass exercise. So it's a huge, huge concept. It's an objective concept that you can apply to every exercise you use, and especially comparing two exercises. Like, hey, should I use this exercise or that exercise? Like, well, what's our stimulus to fatigue ratios for you? And if you're like, well, clearly, like, like if I'm like, okay, if you do five sets of assisted pull-ups versus five sets of this weird pull-down machine that your gym just got, which one stimulates you more? Like it's just the pull-ups for sure. Like which one fatigues you more? Like eh, that weird machine, it kind of fucks my shoulders up and I don't know, I just feel tired. I feel like handles are too big. Okay, so which one are you gonna do? Like okay, assistant pull-ups, right? Because it just plain old wins, right? And, and a bunch of exercises are tied on stimulus to fatigue ratio or at least to have a very high one. Those like top three or four are the ones you're gonna use all the time in your program. Like, you know, variation's cool. You can use squats, you can do legs press, you can do hack squats, you can do lunges. No one is going to recommend that you do partial sumo stance squats for your quads because that unstimulus to fatigue ratio just rules itself out. So this is a, kind of a neat concept uh, that sort of allows us to objectively analyze, like, is this a good idea? Is my technique good? So on and so forth. And people say, like, oh, man, I improved my technique on an exercise and allowed me to get more out of it. What they really mean is the stimulus to fatigue ratio improved. And if it didn't, I don't know what they mean by get more out of it. <laughs> 
No, brilliant. I, I, I think I've heard you. Oh, I can hear myself back. It's all right. It's, it's not too bad. It's trippy, isn't it? <laughs> like, so I sound like I'm shouting at you. Um, no, it, I, I really like that concept. And I think you may have spoken about it before. At least I, in my head, have heard some somewhere that you've said it because um, I'm pretty sure I used it even for an infographic on deadlifts and how that kind of the, sh- the ratio shifted as you got more advanced and stronger with deadlifts. For sure. And that is related to the axial loading concept because axial loading really fucks that fatigue up big time. But sometimes the stimulus is worth it. Like for beginners, they're, you know, they don't really care how much fatigue they sum up because their MRV is so high relative to what, uh, how, how much their work capacity is. They just can't do that much damage. So then it makes sense because you get the total magnitude of stimulus from deadlifts is fucking crazy high if you can tolerate the fatigue. Like, you know, it'd be funny if a beginner was like, yeah, I don't do deadlifts because they tire me out too much. Like, tire out for what, you little bitch? You're pulling 60 kilos. You could do like 80 sets of that and be just fine, right? But when you're super fatigue constrained, when your MRV is tight and filled with all this other shit and you're at the very end of your genetic limits, yeah, you don't just throw deadlifts in there and fuck the whole thing up. So I think I've used it in that context, but I've never really expanded upon it in a very general yeah. context of like, look, this applies to all exercisers. Um, and that's how you really find out if you're doing the right thing in the gym. And that's something I've seen you and Jared particularly practice. It kind of fit, something that rings true to me is kind of getting more out of less in the way you control your exercises, where you don't jerk anything, where often with your squats, you do pause them in the bottom. You control that. I mean, that's something I changed with my squats recently and it made a huge, like that ratio completely shifted in the favor of muscle growth. I'm getting more quad soreness than I would ever have got beforehand. And I'm not getting the knee, the hip issues that I was getting when I was really kind of using that stretch reflex out of the bottom, which I think some people can get away with, but it just wasn't working for me. That is exactly how you're supposed to be using that 100%. Um, and, and it's tempting to do the hardcore exercises. It's tempting to shorten range of motion. It's tempting to use more weight, but you've got to come back every now and again to like, am I stimulating and at what expense of fatigue is this coming? And, uh, you know, a lot of times when we look at the goofy ways in which pro bodybuilders train, stimulus to fatigue ratio can explain some of that. Like, why is that guy doing cable flies and not dumbbell flies? Because if you do dumbbell flies with the 80 pound dumbbells, it just fucks you up. The injury risk is really high. Total fatigue, the muscle damage might be too high. But with, with flies and cables, it might just be the right way to get the most juice out of that exercise for that person. And they like, you know, there's a lot of pro bodybuilders say like, I really love this exercise. I really feel it where I'm supposed to. Like, that's a big deal. I and mean, of course, like, you know, guy who just got his, you know, cert last year is looking at him. He's like, he's doing that wrong. Like, that's nice. You know, he might, he, he might be, he might just be doing it wrong. And you could teach him how to do it right. And it'd be better. But uh, I'll tell you like a real, real quick story. Um, I have like this patented, patented, uh, this stock workout that I did that I put people through. If they ever ask me, like, if they tell me like they're struggling with quad development and uh, they're like, you know, squatting a lot and deadlifting a lot and leg pressing a lot. And they're just like, they can't feel my quads or like, I don't know, like I've never overtrained my quads. I don't think it's possible. I do this workout where the, the average ends up being is 10 total sets. And what it is is I teach them to leg press properly and which means full range of motion and, you know, heels on the, uh, the pad at all times, chest up and everything like that, low position, feet closer together. I teach them to leg press like that. And then we do six working sets of leg presses in the 10 to 20 rep range. And after this, like, they're like violently shaking their quads and they're like, what the fuck is going on? And then four sets of high bar squats 
in the 12 to 10 to 12 rep range paused. And a lot of times these are strong dudes who used to squat 150 kilos for reps. They're actually doing it with 60 kilos because they're mush mm-hmm. and they get doms. And I don't advocate training like a sustainably, they get doms for like six days. And I'm like, so do you still think your quads are an issue? And they're like, dude, what the fuck? How did you do that? And I'm like, well, here's the thing, man. You've been training wrong your whole fucking life. Like no one's ever taught you how to leg press properly. You know, you've seen all those videos of strong guys like doing these little bullshit half wraps and putting their feet really wide. Like as soon as a guy puts his feet wide on the leg press, I'm like, here we go. Like I remember one guy, man, I was training at a gym in California and I was like, you know, 240 at the time, relatively lean. And I had finished leg pressing with like uh, four or five, four and a half plates on the side, you know, properly. And this guy was waiting for the leg press and he was like one half my size. And as soon as I was done, he put more weight on the leg press and did more reps than I did in leg press. And I just wondered, um, I told Jen Case at the time, her and I were hanging out. I was like, I wonder if that guy thought for even a moment, like (laughs) why did that guy's legs look like that? And I'm stronger than him. Or did he like pat himself on the back? Like that guy's a pussy, all that muscle. (laughs) I reckon he did. (laughs) Because I remember seeing a guy like that once it was a Olympic weightlifter. And I was, this is when I was 19 years old. I was half squatting all the time. So just didn't know any better. I saw a guy use 60 kilos and do an Olympic squat with it. And it's like, I remember his triceps were big and his quads were huge. And, And I was like, whoa what the fuck is that i was like how are his big legs doing such little weights and he sunk it like into the floor like from next day on i was like i'm going deep as soon as i started doing that i was like oh my god i can't believe this whole other world of misery <laughs> and and uh, and benefits exist so it's one of those things where like anytime you do an exercise you can sort of shit test yourself and say okay am i stimulating and is the fatigue reasonable? Is the fatigue worth the stimulus? Mm-hmm. Because if the fatigue is just being added to lift more weight, but you don't feel it in your muscles, then I, I don't, I don't know. It's probably not worth. I think we've all got that guy in our gym. I've certainly got one in my gym who he just puts on all the plates on the, the leg press, every plate that can go on there. He just puts it all on there. Um, and to me, it's always like, I'm too lazy to do that. Like, thank God I only leg press like five plates because I don't want to drag eight plates out. Like I trained with Charlie and he has to do like six and a half plates. And he's like, I got to put all these plates on, but that's, you know, full range of motion for sets of 10 and 12. It just, he's 800 pound squat. It's just what it takes. And it's just, there's, there's guys, Oh my God, there's a girl at our gym who probably weighs 60 kilos she's not jacked by the way um and she leg presses basically what i do um and, and yeah and her and i like would trade sets before and i just i don't know if it ever occurred to her she's probably just like wow i'm really strong you know like <laughs> that's the only thing she thought <laughs> <laughs> and you brought up another concept there i guess that might play into the stimulus to fatigue ratio in terms of like the leg pressing ball for the squatting kind of an interesting way to try and maybe get that in the, your favor again as you're more advanced. Totally. Because as you're more advanced, the fatigue comes at more and more of a cost. And, um, you know, the stimulus to fatigue ratio of the squat could always be really high, but you don't care so much because you don't pay a big price on that fatigue because your MRV is fucking massive and you're just not that strong. When your fatigue starts to be a real concern, you have to shift the stimulus to fatigue ratio to an, uh, a lower stimulus in absolute terms, but in relative terms, a way better stimulus to fatigue ratio. Um, so you end up leg pressing before you squat. Now, if you squatted first and leg press second, the total magnitude of the disruption would be higher. Um, you know, like, so if you can still pay the fatigue cost of that, do it because it's probably better. 
But if you leg press before squatting, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is probably a little better. So you could do more of both to get more growth, especially if you're really fatigue limited. Like when people ask, like, am I fatigue limited? If you have to ask, you're probably not. Right. Like, like, I don't know, like people say, like, why do you leg press before you squat? And then uh, here's here's a funny one. People ask me this all the time. Dr. Mike, why do your reps go down from set to set on leg presses? Because I get tired, motherfucker. Don't you people get tired? And they're like, I never get tired. I'm like, well, that just means you're too small. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. Just you, you will know at some point when you can't just do sets of 10 anymore, the real intro workout fatigue looks like. And they think, some people think it's like a predetermined rep scheme. They're like, why do you drop by exactly two reps? Yeah. I'm like, because that's just about how many reps I know I'm not going to be able to get on the next set. So it's one of those things like if you – if you watch all these lectures and you read all the shit you and I put out, axial loading, if like, what the fuck is that? You read about it and you're like, I don't get it. I don't, it's not that I don't get it. I, I can't relate to it. Great. Yeah. Don't worry about it. But if you read it and it's been happening to you, you're like, oh, that's what that is. Fuck. Then you want more of these tips. Cool. I think um, we'll call it there, if that's all right, Mike. And uh, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. People absolutely love these episodes, especially the Q&As. Um, so I'm glad we can get at least another one done before we hit 2019, which I can't believe it's already coming along. Um, but yeah, thank you again, Mike. And uh, I'm sure everyone would like to thank you as well. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me on. It is an honor every single time. Cheers, guys, and take care.